This edition of Space Time is brought to you by Marley Spoon. Marley Spoon's mission is to make incredible home cooking available to everyone by turning you into an instant gourmet. And as a special incentive for Australian listeners, if you go to marleyspoon.com.au, you'll get 35 Aussie dollars off your first order when you use the special code SPACE at the checkout. And for American listeners, go to marleyspoon.com and get 30 US dollars off your first order when you use the code SPACE at the checkout. Marley Spoon, changing the way you cook. This is Space Time, Series 20, Episode 41, for broadcast on the 26th of May, 2017. Space Time is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audio Boom, direct from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favourite podcast download provider. Spacetime is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., around the world through TuneIn Radio, and as in-flight entertainment aboard Virgin Australia. Coming up on Spacetime, a mysterious new object suddenly discovered near one of the best-ever-studied black holes, a new look at the dinosaur-killing asteroid impact event, and the truth about unidentified flying objects. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have discovered a mysterious new bright object near one of the best-studied supermassive black holes in the universe. A report in the Astrophysical Journal and on the pre-press physics website archive.org claims the newly discovered object appears to be either a very rare type of supernova, or more likely, an outburst from a second supermassive black hole closely orbiting near the primary central supermassive black hole in the Cygnus A galaxy. Cygnus A is an elliptical galaxy located some 730 million light-years away in the constellation Cygnus the Swan. The supermassive black hole at the heart of Cygnus A is a billion times more massive than the Sun. By comparison, Sagittarius A star, the supermassive black hole at the centre of our own Milky Way galaxy, is just 4.3 million times the mass of the Sun. Cygnus A is also known as a radio galaxy. In fact, it's one of the strongest radio sources in the sky. Radio galaxies contain AGNs, or active galactic nuclei, electromagnetic radiation being emitted by material falling into the galaxy's central black hole. Material falling into a black hole's gravity well forms an accretion disk around the black hole's event horizon, a sort of point of no return. The matter in the accretion disk releases vast amounts of energy before passing beyond the event horizon and falling into the black hole's singularity. Some of this released energy is channeled along magnetic field lines and shot into space perpendicular to the accretion disk as powerful jets of energy called quasars, which can be seen across the other side of the universe. More compact versions of these jets are called blazars, and if most of the emission is seen in radio frequencies, it's called a radio galaxy, like Cygnus A. But regardless of which label they're given, they're all AGNs, or active galactic nuclei. As for Cygnus A, It's been studied in great detail for many years, ever since its discovery back in 1939. Images of Cygnus A in the radio portion of the electromagnetic spectrum clearly show two jets protruding out in opposite directions from the galaxy's centre. 
These radio emissions were later matched to visible light emissions in 1951. But the radio jets extend many times the length of the portion of the galaxy which is emitting electromagnetic radiation at visible wavelengths. At the ends of the jets are two lobes with hot spots of more intense radiation at their edges. These hot spots are formed when material from the jets collides with the surrounding intergalactic medium. The galaxy was an early target for the Very Large Array or VLA radio telescope following its completion in the early 1980s. Detailed images of Cygnus A by the VLA, published in 1984, produced major advances in science's understanding of the superluminal jets of subatomic particles. However, when astronomers recently pointed the VLA at the famous galaxy for the first time in decades, they were surprised to see a bright new object near the galaxy's core. The study's lead author, Daniel Purley, from England's John Moores University, says the new object may have much more to tell science about the history of Cygnus A. The VLA's images of Cygnus A from the 1980s marked the state of the art of the observational capabilities at that time. Because of that, astronomers didn't bother looking at Cygnus A again until 1996, when new VLA electronics provided a new range of radio frequencies for observations. The newly discovered object wasn't present in any of the 1996 observations. However, another VLA upgrade completed in 2012 made it a much more powerful telescope and so astronomers decided to have yet another look at Cygnus A using the observatory's new capabilities. The author's new observation run of Cygnus A began in 2015 and continued the following year. And much to their surprise, they found a prominent new feature near the galaxy's nucleus that wasn't present in any of the previous images. The thing is, the new feature is bright enough to have been detected in the earlier images if it had been there. So that means, whatever it is, only turned on or turned up sometime after 1996. To confirm their observations, the authors then observed Cygnus A using the Very Long Baseline Array Interferometer, a series of 10 radio telescopes spread across the United States which are all connected electronically and so can operate as one single giant telescope. The new observations confirm the mysterious object's existence. Interestingly, a faint infrared object was also seen at the same location in both Hubble Space Telescope and Keck Observatory observations originally made between 1994 and 2002. The infrared astronomers from the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory had originally attributed the object to a dense group of stars, but the dramatic radio brightening is now forcing a new analysis. Based on its characteristics, astronomers believe the mystery object is likely to be either a supernova, the cataclysmic explosive death of a star at the end of its life, or an outburst from a second supermassive black hole near the galaxy's centre. The fact that the object has remained so bright for so long tends to rule out any known type of supernova event. And while the new object's definitely separate from Cygnus A's central supermassive black hole by about 1,500 light-years, it does have many of the characteristics of a supermassive black hole rapidly feeding on surrounding material. If it is in fact a second supermassive black hole in Cygnus A, that would indicate a relatively recent, at least in astronomical terms, merging of two galaxies. This would also be one of the closest pairs of supermassive black holes ever discovered, and would mean they're likely to merge into each other sometime in the near future. The authors think the second black hole has become visible in recent years, simply because it's encountered a new source of material to devour. That material could either be gas disrupted from the galaxy's merger, or a star that's passed close enough to the secondary black hole to be shredded by its powerful gravity well. It's hoped further observations will help astronomers resolve some of these questions. This is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary.
If you want more space time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and junk on the web I find interesting, important, or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter. And on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com forward slash spacetime with Stuart Gary. As most of our fans will know over the years on both Space Time and its predecessor Star Stuff, we've reported several times on how the KT Boundary Event Asteroid Impact, which caused the extinction of all the dinosaurs other than birds, and ultimately led to the rise of humans, may not have been quite so deadly 66 million years ago, had it hit just about anywhere else on the planet. That's because the exact spot where the asteroid hit the Earth contained massive amounts of gypsum. The heat from the impact vaporised the gypsum, producing a toxic mixture of chemicals, including sulphur dioxide and sulfuric acid rain, forming a hot, vaporous cloud of poisonous gas. The asteroid or comet, there's still some debate, is estimated to have been between 10 and 15 kilometres wide. It raised temperatures to over 5,000 degrees as it tore through the atmosphere, slamming into the planet at over 50,000 kilometres per hour. Hitting at an angle of 30 degrees, the impact vaporised a trillion tonnes of Earth in a second, creating a 30-kilometre-deep, 100-kilometre-wide hole in the Earth's crust, which then collapsed, forming the 200-kilometre-wide Chicxulub Impact Crater. The massive impact site covers a huge area of what is now Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula, as well as the adjacent waters in the Gulf of Mexico. Erosion through weathering and sedimentary deposits over the intervening 66 million years has managed to erase most of the crater. The impact is geologically known as the Cretaceous-Tertiary, or KT, boundary event. That's because it marks the delineation between the Cretaceous period before the asteroid impact, when dinosaurs still ruled the world, and the Tertiary period which followed, and which led to the rise of mammals, and eventually humans. Any living thing within sight of the impact was killed instantly either by the heat of the impact itself or by the colossal blast wave, a shockwave generated by the impact. A tsunami several kilometres high was also produced, flooding what are now the Americas, Africa and Europe. Within minutes, the impact sent a searing hot vapour cloud of poisonous gas spreading over North America, setting the continent on fire and killing most life. Scientists believe that had the KT asteroid hit the Earth just about anywhere else, the dinosaurs would have survived and humans would probably never have evolved. As we mentioned at the top of the story, that's because the exact spot where the asteroid hit contained massive amounts of gypsum. As the gypsum vaporised from the heat of impact, it produced a toxic mixture of chemicals, including sulphur dioxide and the greenhouse gas carbon dioxide. The sulphur compounds were especially toxic, forming little globules which persisted in the atmosphere for up to 100 years. The sulphur also mixed with seawater, which was also vaporised by the impact, to produce a powerful sulfuric acid rain which fell over the entire planet. At the same time, burning ejecta from the impact crater was thrown high into the upper atmosphere, raining back down as fire over the entire planet, starting global firestorms. The dust from the impact and the smoke from the firestorms combined to blanket the earth, blocking out sunlight and heat, and creating an impact winter which lasted for years. So, in addition to the shockwave, the tsunami, the firestorms, 
and the nuclear winter-type global cooling, the Earth and all life on it, also face being choked by thick clouds of sulphur and carbon dioxide and burnt by showers of caustic acid. Of course, the impact didn't just affect the dinosaurs. It created a mass extinction event which killed some 70% of all life on Earth. A dark layer of debris from the impact, rich in the element iridium, a very rare mineral on Earth but common in asteroids, marks the exact point in the geologic history of the Earth 66 million years ago when the KT boundary event occurred. This KT boundary event line is still visible in rock strata over the entire planet, providing indisputable testament as to the global impact of the asteroid event. Now a new BBC documentary is going over those tumultuous world-changing events. It's looking at new drill core samples from 1.3 kilometres below the seabed, taken from near the actual asteroid impact central crater peak, some 30 kilometres off the Mexican coast. The new data provides a fascinating insight into the geology and chemistry behind one of the largest mass extinction events in the planet's history. To find out more, Andrew Dunkley is speaking with Dr Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Those core drilling uh, results from the Gulf of Mexico where they've been looking at the uh, splash point of the asteroid impact to see what they can see. What have they seen, Fred? Really interesting stuff. As you said, uh, the results are quite fascinating. It was last year during the first half of last year, that this little drilling vessel, which has the charming name of Myrtle. Yeah, that's sure right. It's called Myrtle. <laughs> Myrtle uh, sat in the Gulf of Mexico for about, it's only about six weeks, I think, drilling into the, first of all, the sediment that underlies the seabed of the Gulf of Mexico, and then through that into the rock itself, the strata, which scientists believe will carry the memory of the impact 66 million years ago that we are pretty sure wiped out the dinosaurs. Mm. Uh, they actually drilled down to 1,300 metres beneath the, the floor of the Gulf of Mexico. So it was a significantly big hole in terms of its depth, of course, only something like 10 centimetres in diameter, something of, of that order, the core that came up. So the results we've seen before have more or less confirmed the modelling that was made of what this impact was like in terms of the way it shocked the rocks and essentially um, absolutely shattered the Earth's crust at that point. But the new results have revealed that the impact took place probably in the worst possible spot on the Earth for the survival of species because it didn't hit on land and it didn't hit in the depths of an ocean. It actually hit in a shallow sea mm. and that has the consequence to do with the, the way these shallow seas deposit minerals on their seabeds but it, it lifted huge volumes of sulphur which comes from the mineral gypsum. This sulphur was injected into the atmosphere and eventually circumnavigated the globe so that you had a global covering of sulphur in the atmosphere which reduced the sunlight coming down to the surface very dramatically and it was basically that reduction in sunlight that caused the mass extinction phenomena because this world was very quickly cold and dark and food apparently ran out very, very quickly. And that, of course, leads to mass extinctions. So they mostly would have starved to death. I think that's right, yes. I mean, in the immediate vicinity, of course, of the impact, this body that hit the Earth's surface was 15 kilometres in diameter. Within the first five minutes, it lifted a mountain range higher than the Himalayas mm -hmm. and then dropped it back again just by the, the, the uh, dramatic effect on the Earth's crust. But it's the long-term after effects that were really the killer for global species. One thing that's really interesting that's also turned 
up. Sort of uh, in parallel with this is that in New Jersey, which of course is a long, long way from the Chicxulub region in the Gulf of Mexico where this event took place, there's a quarry there which has a huge number of fossil fragments that date from exactly the time of the impact. And it suggests that these, since these fossils are, are actually in a very narrow layer of the rock strata, no more than 10 centimetres thick, we're told, it means that perhaps what we're seeing there is the bodies or the, the remains of creatures that were actually killed on the day of the impact wow. itself. So, you know, this is the, the shockwave reaching up to, well, to northeastern uh, USA from the Gulf of Mexico very quickly and wiping out hundreds of thousands of animals. But the global effect, the sort of nuclear winter kind of effect, really is the one that did the biggest damage in terms of species extinction. And very quickly, did I read rightly that if the thing had hit a few seconds earlier, a few minutes earlier or later, it could have been a completely different story. That's right, yes, because it would have landed in either in the Pacific or the Atlantic Ocean, and you wouldn't have got this this effect of the sulphur being lifted. There would have been other effects, of course, a, Gee, a, a makes, ginormous Makes you wonder what but, the Earth would be like now had that had that Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it, it could have, you know, it could have led to the survival of dinosaurs as they were then. Um, I mean, we still have dinosaurs around in the form of birds. They are the direct descendants of the dinosaurs. So it was just the smaller ones that survived. Mm, and the alligators um, but, and the crocs, of course. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. That's Dr. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, speaking with Andrew Dunkley on our sister program, Space Nuts. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. And now we take a break from the show to talk about our new sponsor, Marley Spoon. One of the guys who helps me put space-time together, Hugh, has been testing out Marley Spoon, and he wants me to try it as well. What they do is they make all these delicious menus up for you, deliver it to your front door, bingo, done, simple, no going to the supermarket. Okay, but I can burn water. I mean, I can't cook. No, you would cook with this, trust me. I can't cook either, and I was turning out gourmet dishes. My kids never, ever compliment us on our food, but they were actually asking questions about where we got it from and how come I learned to cook so quickly. And even my wife, who'd been a bit sceptical when I first said we were getting this, suddenly was going, can we subscribe full-time and take this on? And I'll tell you one of the things that really worked, Stuart, was that it gave us options of food that we wouldn't normally eat in our family. So it sort of broadened our horizons, if you like. You've put me onto this because I'm a takeout person. That's all I eat, takeaway food. And you reckon... Even I can cook this. I reckon even you, Stuart, should give it a go because I think you would surprise yourself. The other thing that's really good about these recipes, being so simple, they all only take about 30 minutes to do. 30 to 40 minutes was tops. And that's when you're sitting there looking at the recipe cards going, step one, step two, step three. Oh, I need to check what step one was. But the recipe cards are so clearly laid out that you can't fail. You cannot go wrong. So you became an instant gourmet. What did you cook? Listen to this, Stuart. Your takeaway food's gone. You could be eating tonight crispy skin chicken with almond potatoes. We've got Japanese tofu and vegetables, perfect for the vegetarian. Beef enchilada bake with corn and beans. That, by the way, is a kid-friendly recipe. We've got chicken and vegetable noodle soup, chicken cacciatore with couscous. Just goes on and on. There's 16 dishes there on the menu every week, and they change every week. Now, Stuart, we've got a really special offer for our space-time fans. If you're living in Australia, head over to marleyspoon.com.au, and when you sign up and use the code SPACE, on the checkout, you'll get $35 off your very first order. And for our North American listeners in the USA, if you go to marleyspoon.com, you can use space at the checkout as well and get $30 off your first order as well. So Marley Spoon, changing the way you cook.
The idea of aliens visiting Earth with evil designs in their fiendish minds is one of the staples of modern science fiction. And certainly, unidentified flying objects are real, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're alien spacecraft. While incidents such as the Battle of Los Angeles and Foo Fighters, that's the unexplained aircraft, not the band, can be put down to panic brought about by war, and possibly also fueled by horror movies and sci-fi novels, there are some strange events which just don't go away. And while not steeped in science, they have nevertheless captured the public imagination. The post-war UFO era probably began in June 1946, when pilot Kenneth Arnold reported seeing a string of nine shiny unidentified flying objects flying near Mount Rainier in Washington state at speeds he estimated to be close to 2,000 kilometres per hour. Arnold's description of the objects led to the press quickly coining the name Flying Saucer, although he actually described them as being crescent-shaped and moving like saucers skipping across water. In the weeks that followed Arnold's sighting, hundreds of reports of similar sightings flooded in from the US and around the world, most of which, by coincidence, described saucer-shaped objects. The problem is, later Arnold's story began to change, and changed some more. By the end, he was claiming to have seen the now familiar flying saucers on at least three other occasions. The whole thing led to a very lucrative book deal for Arnold. The next big twist in UFO stories came in 1961, when Barney and Betty Hill claimed to have been abducted and probed by aliens while driving through the White Mountains in New Hampshire. The Hills claimed to have been followed by a bright star-like object, which, upon closer examination, turned out to be an alien spacecraft. Under hypnosis, the pair recalled being inside the spacecraft. They were separated and had medical experiments performed upon them, including a fair bit of anal probing and genitalia touching. And after it was all over and the Hills woke up, they had lost about four hours of time during the encounter. Later, Betty claimed to have seen UFOs on a number of other occasions after the initial abduction. She also showed several hundred photos at a UFO conference, which she claimed were of flying saucers chasing her car and landing. However, they were all little more than blurry and blobby objects against a black background. Upon further investigation, the light seen by the hills was later dismissed as the Cannon Mountain Aircraft Warning Beacon, and the remainder of their experiences are attributed to stress, a lack of sleep, and false memories accidentally implanted during hypnosis. Still, the idea of alien abduction, often repeated over many years, missing time, and a great deal of anal probing have now become an important part of any good UFO encounter. Probably the best-known British UFO encounter is the Rendlesham Forest Incident. In late December 1980, there were a series of reported sightings of unexplained lights near Rendlesham Forest in Suffolk. The events occurred just outside RAF Woodbridge, which at the time was being leased to the United States Air Force. Over several nights, Air Force personnel, including the base commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt, claimed to have seen things, things they described as a UFO sighting. The sightings have since been explained as a misinterpretation of a series of nocturnal lights, a fireball which streaked across the sky, bright stars, and the Orford Nest Lighthouse. It all began early on the morning of December the 26th, that's right, the night after Christmas, when at about 3am a security patrol saw strange lights apparently descending into the nearby Rendlesham Forest. It turns out a meteor was detected over southern England at exactly that time by astronomers. The servicemen initially thought it was a downed aircraft, but when they arrived at the scene they saw what they described as a glowing object, metallic in appearance, with coloured lights. 
but as they attempted to approach the object, it appeared to move through the trees. The men continued to track the object on foot and eventually came upon a large tripod-mounted spacecraft. It had no windows, but it was studded with brilliant red and blue lights. Each time the men came within 50 metres of the spaceship, it levitated a couple of metres into the air and backed away. They claimed to have followed it for almost an hour through the woods and across the field, until all of a sudden it took off at phenomenal speed and disappeared. Shortly after 4am, local police were called to the scene, but they reported that the only lights they could see were those from the Orford Ness Lighthouse. The US servicemen returned to the same spot after daybreak, where they found three small impressions in a triangular pattern, as well as marks and broken branches on nearby trees. Turns out forestry workers had been marking trees and cutting off some branches in preparation for a logging program. Still, two days after the initial incident, Base Commander Holt took radiation readings in the Triangle of Depressions and also in the surrounding area using a radiation survey meter. During this investigation, Holt claims he also saw flashing lights across the field to the east, just like the security patrol had seen on that first night. Need I say the Orford Ness Lighthouse is visible further to the east on exactly that same line of sight. Later, according to Holt's memo, three star-like lights were seen in the sky, two to the north and one to the south, all at about 10 degrees above the horizon. Holt claims the brightest of these hovered for about two to three hours, and every now and then it seemed to beam down a stream of light. Astronomers have explained these as simply a bunch of bright stars in the sky. But I guess when it comes to UFO stories, the big one has to be the Roswell incident. It was July 1947 when something crashed into the ground near the town of Roswell, New Mexico. There are dozens of different versions of the same story, some far more elaborate than others. It all apparently began with an unusually loud explosion heard during a severe thunderstorm on or about July 6, 1947. The next day, local farm foreman Mac Brazel discovered a huge 150-metre-long gouge across a paddock. There was also a debris field scattered across the ranch some 50 kilometres north of Roswell. Brazel is alleged to have claimed to have seen a large area of bright wreckage, including rubber strips, a tinfoil-like memory metal which could be crinkled up into a wad and it would then miraculously unfold itself, returning to a flat, crease-free appearance. There were things made out of bakelite material, and eye beams as light as balsa wood, covered in strange markings which looked like hieroglyphics. None of these materials could be cut or burnt. Brazel gathered up some of the debris and took it to the local Shavers County Sheriff George Wilcox. Wilcox then called Roswell Army Airfield Intelligence Officer Jesse Marcel. Marcel travelled out to the site and collected more of the wreckage. However, as the legend of Roswell continued to evolve and expand, it was later claimed there was a second crash site, allegedly discovered by a group of unnamed university archaeologists in a dried-out array or gulch about 48 kilometres northwest of the nearby town of Corona. It seems the spacecraft which caused that gouge seen by Mac Brassel must have somehow continued to fly for a few more kilometres before finally crashing to the ground. Reports claim the crash site had been cordoned off by military police. It was crawling with military personnel. They were inspecting the wreckage of what appeared to be a boomerang or batwing-shaped spacecraft with a huge hole ripped in one side. Also reportedly found at the crash site were several small humanoid bodies, one of which apparently was still alive. These alien beings had thin, delicate bodies and limbs with huge, oversized heads and almond-shaped eyes. They're what ufologists these days refer to as the greys. The military supposedly conducted a line search, collecting every single scrap of debris, 
so as to remove any and all evidence. The wreckage and the aliens were then taken by a convoy of trucks to the Roswell Army Air Force Base. While in Roswell, a preliminary alien autopsy was apparently carried out on the bodies. It's also claimed the local Roswell undertaker was asked to supply a number of children-sized caskets which could be hermetically sealed because of the intense stench coming from the dead alien bodies. The remains and the wreckage were later supposedly transferred by aircraft eventually to Area 51 in Nevada. What is true is that on July 8, 1947, the Roswell Army Airfield's public information officer, Walter Hout, issued a formal press release claiming that personnel from the airfield's 509th Operations Group had recovered a flying disc which had crashed on a ranch near Roswell. A few days later, the Air Force issued a correction, claiming what was found wasn't a crashed flying saucer after all, but a weather balloon and radar reflectors. After all, weather balloons, intergalactic flying saucers, they're easy to mix up. To underline the change in story, General Roger Ramey from the 8th Air Force at Fort Worth, Texas, held a special press conference where he had Jesse Marcel display the remains of a weather balloon for the gathered media. Conspiracy theorists claim this was a cover-up to hide the truth about the flying saucer crash at Roswell. UFO researchers, including nuclear physicist Stanton Freeman and writers William Moore and Charles Berlitz, have carried out extensive research into the events of Roswell in 1947. Hundreds of documents were obtained through freedom of information requests, and other documents were supposedly leaked, including information on a top-secret Majestic 12 committee, supposedly set up by President Harry S. Truman to deal specifically with the study and recovery of alien spacecraft, as well as the necessary cover-up of such operations using special agents known as the Men in Black. Over the years, there have been hundreds of books, articles and television specials which have brought the Roswell incident significant notoriety. By the mid-1990s, opinion polls by CNN revealed that the majority of people in the United States truly believed that aliens had indeed visited the Earth and that aliens had crashed at Roswell. To resolve the issue, the US Air Force released documents in 1994 claiming the Roswell incident was actually the crash of what at the time was a top-secret Project Mogul balloon train. Project Mogul was a military surveillance program deploying a string of high-altitude balloons, radar reflectors and advanced electronics designed to listen in for Soviet nuclear weapons tests. Then a second Air Force report in 1997 claimed the so-called alien bodies discovered at Roswell were actually part of the 1950s Operation High Dive, which used modified crash test dummies in ejector seat trials to determine how well fighter pilots could survive being ejected from aircraft at supersonic speeds. Similarities have been drawn between the Roswell incident and another which occurred years later near Kecksburg in Pennsylvania. In 1965, a bright fireball crashed into the woods near Kecksburg after streaking across the skies of Ontario, Michigan and Ohio. Locals, including news reporters and firefighters, claimed seeing an object as big as a car and shaped like a giant acorn half buried at the crash site. United States Army personnel secured the area and ordered civilians out. They then removed the object on a flatbed truck. Reporters at the scene then had their film and audio recordings confiscated by the military. Problem is, when questioned later, the military claimed they searched the woods but found absolutely nothing. For UFO researchers, it all sounded a bit too much like Roswell Deja Vu. Later, an official explanation was issued claiming that the widely seen fireball was a mid-sized meteor. However, it wasn't until 2005 that NASA confirmed that the Kecksburg incident was a crashed Soviet Union spacecraft. It seems the Cosmos 96 spacecraft had failed shortly after launch from the Baikonur Cosmodrome. 
The US Air Force wanted it, and they didn't want the Russians to know they got it. All fine and dandy. But then the Discovery Channel got into the act. That's right, from the people who brought you Finding Bigfoot, the Discovery Channel had a documentary series claiming the Kecksburg object could have been an alleged secret Nazi UFO known as the Glocke or the Bell. Some claim the Glocke was part of a Nazi anti-gravity experiment. However, there's no evidence that it ever really existed and most regarded as nothing more than a hoax. Like many of the stories we've looked at, UFO sightings can often be put down to misidentifications, sometimes involving black ops aircraft research projects. It's worth remembering that the F-117 stealth fighter was flying and fully operational for at least 12 years before the public was told it really existed. And that was only after a Japanese toy manufacturer began selling a model aircraft version of it. Australian Skeptics President Aran Segev thinks most UFOs are simply misidentifications. Well, UFOs, by definition, are unidentified, so there is a leap from that to identifying them as specifically coming from outer space, although it's just become common to say UFO as a synonym for an alien spacecraft. However, most of the time, that identification has no basis in fact. People are not very good at assessing distances, for example, so they see something, especially in the night sky, and with no reference point, with, no, uh, with nothing to tell them how far something really is, something can look like it's moving or it can look like it's stationary in the sky, especially in the night sky, it's difficult to tell. The speed at which something is moving is incredibly difficult to assess, but people are not aware of how difficult it is for people to assess. Even professionals find speed and distance difficult to assess in the sky, but yet lay people think that for some reason they can do it very easily. Again, at great distances, something that has a, a shape can look like it has no shape, like it's just a dot, or uh, three planes in the night sky can look like they're a triangle. Our brain makes a connection that makes them look like they're a single shape, even though there may be other three separate craft. We had a similar incident like that with the Phoenix Lights. These were a, a series of flares being dropped by A-10 warthogs following a training exercise, and because they came down in a pattern which looked like a giant V in the sky, everyone immediately thought it was a, a UFO. That's exactly right, and just like I said, the reports in terms of the distance, the, the distance people reported varied dramatically. Some people reported it as being very close. Some people reported being able to hear the sound of whatever it was, which clearly was not possible because it was many, many miles away. And it was not actually a shape that was making a sound. It was just flares. So that incident actually demonstrates these effects very clearly. You're talking to us from Sydney. And, of course, one of the biggest UFO sightings on a regular basis in Sydney are planes coming from the north landing at Kingsford Smith Airport. They fly over the city. And at night, all you see is just a series of dots in the sky, which gradually get bigger and bigger and closer and closer until you realise they're aircraft with their landing lights on. It's very common. Although, I must say that the... Number one most common UFO sighting is always Venus. Venus. There's a funny story that skeptic uh, Steve Roberts likes to tell where he was told by someone that uh, they saw a UFO. I say, this was somebody who should know, you know, somebody with some experience in looking at the night sky and claimed that they saw a UFO. Steve asked for a lot of information in order to detect exactly where that UFO was and, you know, based on the, the time and date and the direction and all kinds of things, said to this guy, this was Venus. And the guy said, no, no, I know what Venus looks like. This was not Venus. So Steve retorted very, very cleverly. In that case, you should have seen two objects, the UFO and Venus, Oh, which completely confused that guy. But that is actually the case. You know, Venus is there. You know, you will see Venus, uh, whether you see something else or not. That, that is a that is a separate matter. 
there is a story from the 70s with uh, Jimmy Carter, then U.S. president, who claims to have seen a UFO. His description matches very, very closely. It's, it's almost certain that what he saw was Venus. I think it's important that we remind ourselves that uh, most people who are reporting UFOs really are looking at something that they don't understand. It doesn't fit their frame reference it doesn't look like an aircraft and so they're confused and they really believe they're seeing something totally out of this world and i must admit if i didn't know what a b2 spirit bomber looked like that's the stealth bomber and i saw one of those things head on I think it was a flying saucer too. And the same could be said for the SR-71 Blackbird when it was being tested at Area 51 back in the 1960s. And also, of course, the F-117 Stealth Fighter, although it's not a fighter, it's an attack aircraft, but still we'll call it a fighter for the sake of this, the F-117 Stealth Fighter. Again, I can't imagine anything looking more alien than that. Well, the thing is, you know, when talking about unidentified, it's, it's important to remember that it's unidentified by the observer. It doesn't mean, first of all, that it's unidentifiable. You know, maybe somebody with some knowledge would be able to identify it. The leap from unidentified or even from unidentifiable to being identified as an alien spacecraft is quite quite a significant leap and that it's not warranted by anything that we know about physics and about the universe and about time and space. That's the interesting point, isn't it? The physics involved in doing an interstellar or intergalactic trip, it's difficult. I mean, how do you travel faster than the speed of light? And in order to travel from one galaxy to another, or even from one part of our galaxy to where we are, that would still take light years, dozens, maybe even hundreds, if not thousands of light years to do a journey like that. Even if you could, you'd get sort of bored with it by then, wouldn't you? Well, I think that's that's anthropomorphizing a bit or whatever aliens there may be. There may be machines. The concept oh, yeah, yeah of, that, that, that's the concept, like that. The concept of alien life out there is not something that I consider to be uh, in the realm of the impossible. However, coming to Earth is is a completely different thing. Obviously, there's no evidence that uh, alien life out there exists. Uh, however, I, I tend to believe that the statistics, you know, just the statistics, the probability alone suggests that there's probably life out there somewhere. However, it may not be at all like ours. And maybe they live for a lot longer. Maybe they live forever. Maybe they're machine machines rather than um, uh, biology the yes. Borg. so so you know I, i'd rather not go in that direction however whichever direction you follow you will still be faced with the fact that it's a very very long trip one of the big issues is there's never been any evidence this came up when we were looking at data on the roswell ufo crash when they can give me a piece of evidence that can be put in the smithsonian institute then i'll start believing first of all we know there's no physical evidence every time that something comes up it turns out to be completely normal something that the the observer or the whoever found the evidence simply didn't understand. Some time ago, there was somebody who uh, showed some some rocks that were supposedly some alien material, turned out to be some silicates that would just looked a little bit weird to that person. The, on YouTube, you can find dozens and dozens of videos of supposedly alien artifacts that are completely normal stuff that are simply unexplainable by the person observing, but not by science. There's another thing that I think is really important to note. That is, we don't even have a good photograph. Now, we all walk around with high-quality cameras in our pockets nowadays. You would expect that by now we'd have some good quality photographs, yet we don't. We don't have a single compelling photo. What we have are all kinds of things that are mostly blurry or sometimes clearly edited, things that are difficult to judge exactly, you know, with distances, sometimes reflections, you know, shots through a window where what you're seeing is actually a reflection from inside a house. You're not seeing anything that's really compelling. You would expect that by now we'd have something. Do Australian skeptics deal with a lot of UFO claims? We used to do 
a lot more. It's really quieted over the last decade or so. I think one of the things that have happened was the all the research around false memories that has shown that a lot of the abduction phenomena are quite natural. You know, the the claims for abduction. You know, in the in the 80s and 90s and even into the 2000s, there was there were a lot of claims of alien abduction, but it was exposed very clearly as something that is false. First of all, there, there was the whole issue of false memories where people who claim to be abductees turned out to be all treated by the same small number of psychologists or psychiatrists who used mostly hypnosis in order to retrieve those memories. Then when research came up that showed how easy it is for such treatments to instill false memories in the minds of, of people and it was uh, some recordings were actually made where it was shown that the therapist was unintentionally, I should point out, instilling false memories into the minds of the people being treated. I think that was a major blow for the whole abduction culture. There was also other things. A lot of the abduction stories, people claimed that they were in bed, they woke up, there was a presence in the room, they felt like somebody was actually pinning them to the bed. And we now know that there's a very, very common phenomenon called hypnagogia, sleep paralysis, where people are in, they're like in between, they're asleep and they, they wake up a little bit, but they're not completely awake. And it turns out this is quite a normal phenomenon, exists in a significant proportion of the population, something like 10% will experience hypnagogia at some point in their lives, but not necessarily regularly. And it's really quite scary because what it, you are actually paralyzed and that's exactly how you feel. You feel there's a presence in the room, you feel like somebody is sitting on your chest, there's a weight on your chest, and obviously it's dark and you're a little bit confused because you just woke up and you're not completely awake. So these things have become more well known. So it's easier to rebut a lot of the claims. So UFO people have kind of moved into the shadows a little bit. Although the UFO claims still exist as part of the general tendency to claim conspiracy by the government, which is why a lot of UFO conspiracy theorists claim that the government is hiding physical findings, physical contact with alien species. We have just too much evidence that it's unlikely and that a lot of the observations are tainted. The problem is people don't let go. And that's when they what they tend to do is they tend to have all kinds of ways of arguing. They look for anomalies. So there's all kinds of events, you know, so that, that happen, you know, how, but how do you explain this about the lights or that about the lights? And they basically try to show show you as wrong, but not necessarily prove themselves right. And that it, it's something called gish galloping, which is basically the, the ability in a debate to throw lots and lots of supposed facts at the person you're debating. It's a scary approach and just hope some of it sticks. Another thing that people do is engage in something called special pleading, where they explain why the rules of evidence generally do not apply to them. And we're not talking about the legal rules of evidence. We're talking about the scientific rules of evidence. So they would explain, for example, how, oh, of course, you can't see them because they, they're very good at hiding those materials. You can't detect the materials from the aircraft. Those life forms are very good at hiding their presence. They can, it's basically, they just make stories up that would explain why there is no evidence. But that's called special pleading. Things are generally expected to be tested. Any theory, any hypothesis that you present in science, you need to be able to test. Isn't special pleading being used now by practitioners of homeopathy in Australia? Special pleading is a very powerful tool. It basically allows you to explain away all doubts. Now, what's happening specifically with homeopathy? I, I presume you're referring to the National Health and Medical Research Council report on homeopathy. Yes. Two years ago, it found that homeopathy was a lot of bunkum. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good way of summarizing it. So basically flavored what water, it was... Not even flavors. <laughs> a flavors, flavored water without flavor. It was a review of the evidence from homeopathy. It was very thorough. 
right, looked at 1,800 papers initially, although that whittled down to 225 that made the inclusion criteria. They basically did not want to include any papers that were not a high enough quality of those. The draft for comment was published in uh, April 2014 and met with a lot of outcry and many comments from the proponents of homeopathy. And of course, a lot of these comments were a special pleading of the type that we are referring to. You know, they explained how homeopathy cannot be tested according to the rules of science. There was a lot of claiming, for example, of things like uh, individualized medicine, whereas individualized medicine can still be tested using normal statistical tools of science. But of course, that would inconvenience homeopaths quite dramatically if we were to do these studies. So they don't. The final paper was published in March 2015. And uh, if I may quote the conclusion, the review found no good quality well-designed studies with enough participants to support the idea that homeopathy works better than placebo or causes health improvements equal to those of another treatment. But the thing is, we're still paying for a lot of that through our private health insurance and things like that. Some private health insurers, actually most, I'll get to that in a moment. Most uh, private health insurers will actually reimburse people for some alternative treatments, like chiropractic is very commonly supported, homeopathy less so, and other treatments are generally uh, supported by those uh, private health funds. And the government actually, through our taxes, provides a rebate of up to a third on some of these costs. So it is actually paid for uh, at least partially by our tax dollars. It's important to note that there is one, only one health fund, private health fund in Australia that does not provide any alternative medicine, does not cover any alternative medicines. And you would not be surprised to know that that is the doctor's health fund because doctors know better. Based medicine, yeah. Yeah, they just, they, they're not interested in that. They don't want their health fund to support that. People think that homeopathy is natural medicine. In fact, homeopathy is a, a substance that is supposed to cause the same effect as the disease. So for example, if you want to cure insomnia, you would take coffee because coffee causes insomnia. What you then do is you take that caffeine and you dilute it to the point where there's nothing of the caffeine left in the solution. And then what you give the person with the homeopathy is basically giving you nothing that supposedly remembers something that was in it. All that sounds like, well, homeopathy won't help you. It won't actually hurt you. That's not always the case, is it? There is a major issue with manufacturing where dose control is not good enough. And you may actually get some of the substance that, oh, that's originally supposed to be in the, uh, in the homeopathy medication and supposed to be to have been diluted out of existence. So that is the first problem. The second problem is that very often people might take homeopathy instead of seeking proper treatment. And I would say that is by and large the, the bigger problem. But definitely people have been poisoned by homeopathic medications because there was something left in them. With that second issue, you've got the problem of people are given a bad diagnosis, but rather than be given medical treatment immediately, they'll do homeopathy first. That won't work. So they've lost a year's worth of treatment or more. And Often in that case, it, it can be too late. There's many cases, including uh, cases in my own family of people who have lost their lives unnecessarily because they chose alternative medicine because of the hope that it provides, because promises to have less side effects and to be less arduous on the uh, on the body. Uh, however, they've lost the battle because of it. That's Aran Segev, president of Australian Skeptics. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, your favourite podcast download provider, or direct from spacetimewithstuartgary.com. 
The shows also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science 360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., around the world on TuneIn Radio and as part of Virgin Australia's in-flight entertainment. If you want more space time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and junk on the web I find interesting, important, or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter. And on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com forward slash spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts or Audio Boom. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. This edition of Spacetime is brought to you by Marley Spoon. And as a special incentive for Australian listeners, if you go to marleyspoon.com.au, you'll get 35 Aussie dollars off your first order when you use the special code SPACE at the checkout. And for American listeners, go to marleyspoon.com and get 30 US dollars off your first order when you use the code SPACE at the checkout. Marley Spoon, changing the way you cook.